Read along with me if you would, please. John 12, 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hoshana, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew told Philip, I'm sorry, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Will you pray with me, please? Commandeer our attention, Lord, our hearts, our minds, to get you in this text, to understand you, to grab a hold of you and love you as you deserve to be loved. Perform the perfect surgery on each of us now, we pray. Minister, Lord, we need it. And as important as this text is, Lord, gorgeous and beautiful and essential, may we apply those things, Lord, which you speak to our hearts. So, Lord, may we worship you now in our attention, and may we worship you, Lord, in the way that we take your word and apply it to our lives. Minister today, Lord, we pray. May this time be perfect time spent, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that we would have so much fun in your word, but that we would be captivated in it, we pray. So put us in the story now and let us get it, I pray. May you be glorified, Jesus, and save and redeem and draw near. Give us those things we need now, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Say today as it would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. 
search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. Contextually, country folk have arrived to queue up to get their insides and then their outsides right in the mikvah ritual bath. But some are getting it wrong. They're whitewashing the surface, but below the surface it's filthy with dead works. But there are those who, through faith, are hungry to be right with God, and they have their definitive moment at this mikvah, this ritual bath. Here is the outward display of the inside of their hearts. One definitive moment to display to yourself the inward change. Now, the last week, what we saw is that Mary had hers, her definitive moment. The house was filled with the spikenard of her adoration, poured out from her heart and spilling onto the feet of Jesus. Her inside erupting into broken alabaster, extravagant worship. One definitive moment to display the inward transformation. Jesus had conquered the grave right in front of her. And even there, some are getting it wrong. Chining voices scowl at her elaborate offering, wanting rather to convert it into skimmable capital. From the surface, it sounds so responsible, so pious. But underneath, it's the voice from the pit, dimly selfish, seeking instead to make Jesus the means to an end, but not letting Jesus be the end of their soul searching. And that was yesterday now. It is a season, a week of men and women coming to get right with God. And in that righteousness, having this definitive moment to display it, and someone or some getting it wrong. It's now Sunday, the Sunday we would call Palm Sunday because of the text unique to John, by the way, telling us of these branches. In the eyes of many, they think Jesus is about to have his, his definitive moment. Oh, but they're getting it all wrong. It's not Jesus' definitive moment, it's theirs. They coalesce to welcome a conquering king shouted to be, shouting to be saved, Pulling out of Psalm 118, God, save now. Save now, God. Their attention, again, is on the outside. Their battle, well, they seek is against their tangible tormentors. It's against Rome. And we can be guilty of this. Their definitive moment where they really do want a conquering king. But they want a king to conquer every external inconvenience and discomfort. While they ignore the greatest need inside of them. Jesus hasn't come for that first and foremost. He came to conquer the greatest tyrant. That inside, that sin that so easily ensnares us inside. And the guilt and hell we have earned in that captivity. But for the general mass, as we see here, the grave inside inconveniences and annoys them infinitely less than the cruel brood of Rome. You see, it won't be till Friday, 
But Jesus has a definitive moment coming. It's five days away. And that's why these two events are placed side by side. Jesus' entry into the temple and the Greeks standing at the threshold in that evening. They transpire in direct succession. John, in his infinite wisdom, God, in his infinite wisdom, writing through John, put them next to each other. Because in the first one, the people are seeking a king. But in the second one, Jesus says, in this I'm glorified. Now, there was a Jewish historian. His name is Yosef van Matesiahu, or we know him better from the name that he was given by the Rome. That's Titus, or Titus Flavius Josephus. He's a historian. We know him as that in a treasury of first century information. He was actually a former Galilean revolt leader against Rome in the first major uprising of Rome in its time. He was captured by Vespasian when he was actually a leader, a commander of his army. And Vespasian saw tremendous potential in this guy. He saw him as brilliant. And so when Vespasian actually becomes emperor in Rome, he takes this guy and he, he makes him his translator and then makes him a historian. And even in exchange for that, actually grants him his citizenship. But this particular man writes a tremendous, this, this um, Josephus writes a tremendous amount about first century from which many people pull. Now, again, it's not scripture, but it does give us a little bit of background. For instance, what he does tell us is that roughly 2.7 to 3 million people showed up at Passover. Over 200,000 lambs were sacrificed, and they would say a minion for a lamb, at least a minion. Now, we, now, when we think minion, we normally think this little yellow thing that works for some like maniacal cartoon genius or not. But traditionally, it goes all the way back to Genesis 18.32, when Abraham, in essence, is in a, in a haggle with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, would you destroy the entire city, if there were 50 righteous. And then he's like, and of course he's like, oh, don't please, please don't be offended. But what about 40? What about 30? And he gets to 10. And when he gets to 10, God's like, that's enough. If there were 10 righteous in the city, I wouldn't destroy the city. Now, God knew there weren't 10 righteous in the city, so there was no senseless haggling over it. But just the same, that particular term becomes a standard, and that standard is a minion. You cannot start a synagogue without 10 righteous men. Therefore, and the reason, and so then when they say about a Passover uh, lamb, they would say that there should be at least a minion per lamb. Now, that's clearly not my household because I think my daughter could eat at least two thirds of the lamb by herself. The entire story. But all I have to say this there are again roughly between two and a half to three million people showing up at Passover. Now, another Roman historian, and we'll get right into the text, we're almost there, named Tacitus, by the way, says that the population of Jerusalem on any normal given day outside of a feast was somewhere between five to six hundred thousand people. So basically a half a million, a little more than a half a million. So that means that during Passover, and by the way, it is actually not the most visited of the three feasts that are required. Does anyone, would anyone know what's the most visited or most populous of all of the three feasts? Again, that's Passover, Pentecost, and then that of, um, of Sukkot, that of Tabernacles. Does anyone know? Um, you know, you would think so. It is the one that's most visited by, you are right, that's great, by the way. That is, it's the one the most visited by the natives in Israel. Because, again, the feasts are done and they have a great time. But the reason why the, the uh, one that actually is it is the middle one, that of Pentecost, 
is because the seafaring Jews that were from the dispersion, it was dangerous for them to travel in the earlier or in the latter times of the year because of the, of the uh, sea was much more rough. And the one that was actually much more calm was that of Pentecost. That was the most visited, again, among the dispersion, but among the populace within the natives of Israel, you are absolutely right, it would be tabernacles. Now, the reason I say that is, let's just put it into this to perspective. You have, a, you have a, a city that has, in essence, a half a million people, and now, all of a sudden, roughly three million people show up. That, that tells us, by the way, we're somewhere between three to six times the size of its population showing up. Let me put it into perspective here. That would be like all of England coming to spend, well, how do we say, roughly all of England, the entirety of England, coming to London for a week. Now, there are times here where we kind of feel like all of England has shown up, or at least all the world has shown up, uh, and usually that's rush hour or whatever. But get the idea, that's what we're looking at. You can see why, for instance, then those who would come from a great length would come to queue up for the ritual baths, for instance. And now, yesterday the lamb was separated. Today the lamb is demarcated for sacrifice. And in that same way, that's kind of what we see here. Now, with all of that said, get the idea, we're in a very crowded place. And though we're in a very crowded place, Jesus now has raised Lazarus just shortly before this, and it's gathered quite a bit of PR, as we would, we would expect. I remind you, yesterday Jesus has been anointed by Mary. And then today, this is Sunday, five days before his execution, before his murder. And we read in verse 12, the next day, the next day after Mary's offering. A great multitude had come to the feast. For what it's worth, John uses the term great multitude four times. It is the last of those four times he uses it here. He uses it in regards to the pool of Bethesda in John 5, where a man is raised there uh, from his uh, particular malaise. And then in John 6, when Jesus actually feeds a vast multitude of people with a handful of, of uh, loaves, five loaves, and two fish. And then this time here. Now, when they heard that Jesus was coming, and I remind you, back in the last chapter, the last couple of verses, they said, is he really going to show up? Isn't he going to show up to this? They took branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hoshana. Hoshana means save now. Understand, when they show up here, there is no time that has more nationalist mindset. There is no time among the Jewish people 2,000 years ago that would stir you up to be free than the celebration of freedom on Passover because it was the time where we commemorate the deliverance out of Egypt under the, the cruel hand of Egypt. Now, it would be a fairly easy dot to connect, wouldn't you think, between that and Rome, where Rome now is basically treating Israel in their own land much like Israel was treated in Egypt you know, in this case, 1,400, 1,500 years prior. Now, understand, this is why the Romans at this point now would deploy six times as many soldiers, because they kind of knew this would be it. Imagine, if you will, if England kept visiting on the 4th of July on the east coast of America. There would probably be, in those first earlier years, there could have been a bit of trouble. By the way, no hard feelings. So, all of that said, they're crying out. And so what they're crying out is, save now. What would that be like? Put yourself there for a moment. You're in a crowd of people yelling, save now, save now, save now. Now, regardless of what you're hearing, the moment that that kind of catches on, what comes to your mind? As far as you, I mean, it seems like those words are broad enough that you could kind of insert your own thing there. Does that make any sense? Like, this is what I need saving from. I think I might have a disease. 
This is what I need saving from. I'm broke. This is what I need saving from. You know that neighbor. You know, it's like, this is what I need saving from. There's that dog that keeps pooping in front of my yard. I mean, it's amazing what we can throw into that moment. I think I got someone pregnant. Wait a minute. I think the police, I think I'm wanted by the police. What did I do last night? I might be an alcoholic. I mean, the things that you could throw out at a moment like that. And the reason I say that is once things get whipped up into a flurry, what happens is you have this broad statement from which you add these very temporal moments into. And again, I remind you, there is supposed to be an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. And that was what Mary did. That's what people are supposed to be doing at the mikvah. But at this point, what happens is, is there is an outward demonstration of an inward frustration. It's like, this moment is bothering me. But the problem is, is, is if you read the Bible long enough, you get to the fact that it's constantly telling you, and it came to pass. In other words, something was there, and now it's not now. Rome, by the way, with all due respect, you can still visit Rome. There's some lovely ruins, and there's some really nice gelato places. Um, Deborah could probably tell you a few. We could as well. There's places where we'd say, hold on to your wallet. But in the end of it all, it's just not the dominating force that it was you know, a couple thousand years ago. By the way, let's go back a couple hundred years ago. Who ruled the world back then? Girls do. No, 200 years ago or so, a few hundred, well, actually, let's go more than that. Let's go six, four, five hundred years ago. This island did. This island influenced the entire world. And I would imagine in those times, they would have thought we are invincible and eternal in this influence even though history has clearly proven opposite. So Rome was a superpower. And I imagine there were others saying, that's no fair, you're the superpower and we're not. You know, and then England was, that's no fair, you're the superpower and we're not. And, and America has been too. But in the end, every superpower on earth, like everything else on earth, comes and goes. But there is a superpower eternal called the Almighty that never changes. And if we are tapping into, with our focus and heart on Him, what we realize is that we need deliverance from eternal issues because everything else is going to come and go. Now imagine what it would be like to hear the right words but attached to the wrong heart. Isn't that the problem? Do you know for what it's worth when we read this? Because this, in one manner or another, is accounted to in all four Gospels. There's unique information given in all of them. We have, for instance, here we have the issue of the palm branches. But I can't help but think of what I read in Luke's account because what Luke tells me is he is weeping. I mean, we kind of look at it and it's like, you know, understand what happens is we call it the triumphal entry. And the reason is a triumph takes place after a battle is won when a king comes riding in, or right before a battle is to be fought. For instance, those of you who are familiar with the, the book of Esther, remember how the king has this feast and it lasts like a half a year, and it's like, what in the world is this? The king had actually just gotten his rear end whooped pretty hard, and he was trying to muster up some sort of steam. Some of you remember when you were in secondary school, they used to have things like pep assemblies. You know, that's where you gathered everyone and you were like, come on, everybody, yay, come on, give me a big cheer. And the idea of it was like your team that lost every match or games, you know, up to this point now is going to play another one and it's a big one and they didn't think anyone would show up unless they kind of got you excited about it. Well, that was actually what was taking place in the book of Esther, by the way. 
Now, in in all that, for what it's worth, he has this big feast with the idea of whooping it up, and he would kind of show up at this thing, and the idea that he'd show up on his team, yeah, we're going to win, we're going to go, it's going to be great. You know, that was kind of the idea, and that was a pre-triumph, and the idea of that was it was kind of a pep rally. And then what happened is, after a great victory, and you can tell the difference because other people are involved in that, on on the return, when you do have such a victory, you have this triumph, kind of like a ticker tape parade, where everyone kind of prays, and what happens is people openly declare that victory, and what happens is people become storytellers that fought in it. The people who, who led, the, you know, the kind of like the Delta Force, the SEAL team, they're in the front, and then in the middle is the commander, and chained to his chariot are the, the people who would be leaders of the enemy army. So you could see that they're completely conquered. In some cases, it all depends on how civil your community was or your culture was. They would take the dead commanders and drag them from the back of the thing so you could just see that they were dead. In some cases, they kept them alive and dragged them to humiliate them, and people you know, threw things at them and stuff, you know, rotten fruit and you know, Barbie dolls or whatever. And, and then all the, ah, like, who wants that? So here's the point of all that. And then what happened is the people who would follow that would be the rest of the army who cleaned things up at the end. And they would, as they walked, they would tell stories. They would say, hey, by the way, let me tell you how we conquered this, how we ended it. Now, think about it, for instance, at the end of the Second World War. Which parts do we, I mean, the the film that's played the most are those moments like storming the wailing wall in Israel, in Jerusalem, how profound that moment was. And there are people who actually weren't even remotely religious weeping there not just because it was the wailing wall and peer pressure, but because it was such a profound moment. Because that was sort of that you just knew at those moments the end, this this thing's done. This is this you look at that and you see victory in that in that particular moment. It emblemizes it. Now the, I want you to realize that because Colossians tells us, by the way, that Jesus destroyed the handwriting of requirements that was against us, triumphing over them at the cross. And then he said, and made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. Now connect those two for a moment. Because here's the idea. Is that you have this commander in his chariot. Chained would be then those, and the enemy army. The commanders, the enemy army. The people in the front then coming before that saying, we stormed the beaches. And the people in the back saying, we cleaned this whole thing up. This is a done deal. And it tells us that there was the handwriting of requirements. That, by the way, was at law against us. That was the battle to be fought was our guilty verdict. But what we read is that Jesus, and the words carefully chosen, triumphed over that. In other words, now we are watching the victory. And as we watch the victory, there is our chief commander, that's Christ, in his chariot. But it says triumphing over that on the cross. What's Jesus' chariot? It's his cross. The cross of Christ is what brought Christ the victory for us. So that we could no longer be held under the tyranny of that sin and guilt. But then it said made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. The enemy army that people, some Christians are still like, oh no, a demon's going to get you. Look at it tells me, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I am not fearful of all that. And I understand they are chained to the chariot of the, of the cross of Christ. That's what it tells me in Colossians. And for those who were in Colossae, they would have understood that. But Jesus understood that. 
And as Jesus is descending from Bethany and Bethphage, interesting, by the way, Bethphage means house of figs, and it would be a place where figs and dates grew on the top of the hill, and then it would be filled with olive trees on the way down, thus the Mount of Olives. Well, one thing that, you know, fig trees and palm trees are, are I'm sorry, fig trees and um, date trees are good at is giving you palm branches. And the people start tearing them off. Now, I don't know about you, but let's say you have a grove and all of a sudden Hugo starts walking in there ripping off leaves from your, you know, from your trees. Hey, you might be, hey, what are you doing? Well, it would gather attention. But here Jesus is, and he knows that in five days he's going to the cross. He is entering the chariot that is going to pronounce victory over us and over that guilt and over hell and over everything that keeps us from standing right with God. And he knows that's the battle to be fought. But the people are saying the right words, but they have the wrong hearts. Because when they're saying, God, save, they're saying, save me from Rome. God, save me from this thing in life. Well, the most important thing It would be like you have terminal stage four liver cancer, but you break a nail. And because you broke a nail, you're like, all I really want to do is make sure I get my nails fixed. It would seem so silly in comparison from a God who sees eternity. But from us at that moment, that nail may be a big deal. But not in God's sight in comparison. And he is weeping. Because he has come to bring peace between us and the Father. And thus, as he is weeping, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he begins to state its history, which isn't so good. Is that if you had only known this moment, the moment that makes for your peace. Man, I just want you to be right with the Father. That's what I want but that's just not where you're at. Now, it's interesting. There are several leaves that they could have grabbed. They could have grabbed leaves from palm trees. They would have been, I'm sorry, from uh, olive trees because they were at the Mount of Olives. That would have made sense. They're much smaller leaves, of course. But I don't think it's an accident they would do these. Do you know the first time, that fall, first time palm trees are actually mentioned in Scripture? Israel has actually just left Egypt. Interesting as it is, the very thing we're celebrating here at Passover. And they had it a bit rough. They weren't eating, they weren't drinking, and God, of course, is going to provide supernaturally. But somewhere after that, God actually leads them to a place called Elim. Or some of you live here go Elim, because their church is called Elim, and that comes from that place. It was the first oasis. It was a place with lots of water and a whole lot of palm trees. Now, when you're wandering around, like in the Sahara or in the Negev, in this case, you know, places that are kind of really, really hot and very, very barren, and a real oasis shows up, it's as good of a thing as you could have ever seen in your life. It is an oasis among an, a very much an otherwise barren horizon. I'll be honest. There have been times we've seen Hugo and Deb that way. And the reason I say that is, is that God ultimately calls us to be that, and we'll see that in a moment. Where at those moments where things seem so bleak, God brings someone in your life that just so brings refreshment and a little heat, I'm sorry, a little shade from the heat, a place where you can be refreshed and rest. 
It was the place that they have. You were to say to those people that wandered for those 40 years, well, at that point, you'd only have two to talk to. But some of them were born and raised in there a bit. What was, and you said Elam, you could see a change on their face because they would just be a, a place where you're like, ah. you know, think of it this way. For some of you, it's like life is full of, you know, challenges and all kinds of other things. And it's, you know, it's like full of just figuring out how to get on and off a train and, oh, it's delayed and how am I going to get there on time? I'm always late. What's this about? And, oh, my goodness, my favorite restaurant. So it's like silly little things, but they all add up, you know, and, and then you finally get that holiday. And, you know, it's like you need it to be more than three days because it takes you three days to detox from what you're used to. So you're just already grumpy and trying to get somewhere, though you have no place to be for the first couple of days because it's what we're addicted to. And then you finally get that day or two before you actually have to concern yourself with returning. And you're like, ah. Oh that place of refreshment. And in essence, it's, again, it is an oasis amidst an otherwise barren horizon. Well, the reason I say that is that was how God chose to introduce palm trees. The second time he's going to introduce it, by the way, is actually that it's there to be used in Sukkot, in those tabernacles. One of the different kinds of, there are several different leaves. We'll revisit Elam again in Numbers 33. It'll be the palm tree. By the way, there have been places like the terebinth tree for Abraham or the rock of Moriah, but we find that when Deborah, of all people, would judge in the book of Judges, who I'm assuming judges by default, no man's willing to step up, and she's and we'll find because the first thing she does is rebuke a guy for not doing what he's supposed to, named Barak for what it's worth. Um, she actually judges at the palm tree of Deborah. And I would say that would be, under those circumstances, the one place where justice was truly being administered, might I say, was an oasis among a very otherwise very barren landscape. But I find it really interesting that in 1 Kings 6 and 7, 2 Chronicles 3 and in 28 as well, well in 2 Chronicles 3, that when the temple was built, the inside was decorated with palm trees. Now, not real ones. They were etched onto the walls. They were on the doors of the, uh, beyond the Nicanor gate, and then you would enter into the holy, the Kedushim, you'd enter into the holy place, and you would see them, and it was like this idea that this was supposed to be a place of oasis. It was to be an oasis in an otherwise barren landscape, in an otherwise barren horizon. You went into the house of the Lord, and it was supposed to be a place of refreshment. And I'll tell you, this was something the Lord started showing me this morning at about four in the morning. I get really great revelations then, and I never write them down, and it's one of the few times I remember it. Because then I pray, and then I just forget it. But, uh, and that is that, as God starts to show this, it's like the place of the Lord, the house of the Lord, is supposed to be a place where you walk out refreshed. Now, let's be honest. For some of you, and obviously we may not get to the whole text, I'm, I, we're just barely in it, but, but hear me in this. I know for some of you, you can hang around with a crowd of people, and you leave there jazzed. You're like amping. Like, yeah, it was awesome. Why don't we do that again? And then there are people, I don't want to say who, but I'm married to one, that um, it's like too many people after a while and they want to sit in a dark, anarchaic chamber somewhere with no sound whatsoever. I have a daughter like that, right? It's like, you know, I have another daughter. She's like, you know, party, 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 party. And then she has her moments. But it's, but it's like, it's, you know, she's like, oh, I had school. How was it? And she just goes to her room, turns off the light and lays in bed. And it's completely dark in there. It's like nothing's happening. Like, what's going on? And the whole reason I say this, some of you, you know, being around people is just going to exhaust you. There are other people, being around people is just going to hype you up. Some of you being among, but what's interesting is watching certain people rise up under certain circumstances. We have a guy who's helping us record, for instance, for tonight. 
And the moment he gets a task, he rises up. Man, he's just perky, perky, perky the moment that happens. In other ways, he's not necessarily that guy. But at that moment, he is. And the reason I say that is, is that whatever that thing is that ignites you, well, first and foremost, it should be the living God. That, that when we come to church, it should so refresh us. That it, I mean, if you came to church and you left depleted, like you're like, I just need to detox from that, well, then definitely churches, then wherever it is, whether it be here or other, this is not the right place for you. Let's face it, it's hard enough, and getting there is the hard part. You've got to grab a kid, or you've got to take people, or you just have friends, or whatever, and you're like, how in the world, how am I going to get there? And then it's, you know, for whatever reason, there are people who never got to sleep last night that are riding the train at 7, 8 in the morning, and we have church at 1230. You know, it's like, it's, you know, it's amazing how that all plays out. And the only reason I say that is, is that God wanted his house to be a place of refreshment. A place that when you, if you were to walk in there, you'd go, oh, I remember when Elam was surrounded by palm trees and how amazing that would be to, to sit in this place in the shade when it was 40 out you know, Celsius and, and, and just, you know, people want to drink the water and I just want to swim at that point, you know. And it's like, and what's interesting though, and hear me on this, is Psalm 92, 12, where it tells us that the righteous flourish like a palm tree. Now, one palm tree, that's Deborah sitting there helping create better judgment. In other words, putting some form of justice back in the world. Righteousness and rightness and truth. But a bunch of palm trees getting together? Well, that would be Elam again. That would be this place of refreshment. I think that's what we're supposed to be here. What do you think? I do find it interesting for what it's worth. The Maccabees cleansed the temple with palms. I thought that was interesting. But I remember when it was... When John started, John the Baptist started his ministry, remember he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight a path for the Lord. Let all high things be made low. Let all valleys be filled. Rough places made smooth. I get it. When a king comes, you want to make sure that the road, royalty comes, you want to make sure the road's an easy one for them, especially because the limo they have is carried on shoulders. You don't want a guy falling and you falling out of your box. It's called a litter, by the way. And the way that you made the path smooth is you took leafy trees and you put them out for people to, so that basically it made the ground soft but also flat. It filled up and it kind of, in essence, leveled off those bumpy areas. It cleared up your potholes. But do you know the last time when you're going to see this issue? Listen to this, and it's in Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Do you know how many it was? Well, then you'd have been better than John. He couldn't figure it out. Um, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne of, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, interesting, he's called the Lamb, of course, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you realize what that is? That's the proper pre-triumph for the final battle. Because there it's about salvation. But the dichotomy we're dealing with is obviously one where people are looking at the outside instead of the inward transformation. And by the way, ultimately what we'll see is they'll tell us these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, washed the robes and made them white and with the blood of the Lamb. Now, 
Let's get into our let's get back into our text for a moment. Believe it or not, that was. But I, I, I mean, let's face it. Some of you, you're really familiar with this, and what you get is there are these people, and they're in their tunics, and they're throwing down these branches, and they're saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From Psalm 18, and the cry out there is, God, save, save now, save God. And Jesus is looking, going, ah, oh, if you only wanted to be saved from what you really need to be saved from. So Jesus is going to help him out. In verse 14, it tells us that Jesus found a young donkey. A young donkey. Why is it so important it's a young donkey? And by the way, for what it's worth, it'll actually tell us in Mark that no one had ever ridden this donkey. And have you ever tried to ride a donkey? Donkeys certainly have a mind of their own. We actually have, we had a couple cowboys, as much as you can call a cowboy on the Central Coast, that was one of my assistant pastors and his wife. They're some of our best friends. And they know how to ride animals. Matter of fact, they actually ran stables uh, at one time in their life. And we went to Israel on one of those classic things where you do a donkey ride at a place, um, uh, for what it's worth, Kifar um, Kedam. I don't know if you've ever been there, Jonathan. Kifar uh, Kedam means ancient village. It's a place where it's basically kind of like Amish, but really for uh, Orthodox. And you would kind of get there and you see what it's like to thresh. What they did in the first century. It's a cool place for that. And then you have what's called a chesla, which is a Bedouin feast. And one of the things you get to do, it's kind of a fun thing, is you get to ride a donkey. And uh, for whatever reason, La, Lori, uh, just she got the one donkey that was really being a real donkey. And uh, he was kind of like Shrek's donkey. You know, it just had a mind of its own. And it was like, I'm, tomorrow, I'm making waffles, but right now you ain't riding me. And if, you didn't, if, if this donkey didn't want you riding him, it was really, in the end of it all, we had to swap the donkey out for another donkey, you might guess. But it was like, I mean, and they just buck. And, but here's the interesting part about it. God makes really clear that Jesus could have chosen one that already had been ridden, one that obviously was going to be clear and safe, but the creator of that donkey, which wasn't just Mr. and Mrs. Donkey, their parents, the creator of the donkey himself, God, who now goes and says, picks an animal that's never been ridden, and we don't read anywhere in this, this is the rodeo for him. He picks one and he rides this animal and he fulfills a text from Zechariah 9.9 that says, Behold, your king is coming. You're looking for a king. They even called him here. They called him Melech Israel, the king of Israel. They're calling him the king of Israel. He goes, but look, your king is coming, but he's not coming the way you expect. The way that you expect is on a white steed, on a big white horse, because that's how a king leads people to battle. So in other words, you kind of expect the king to lead you on a tank. I mean, think of whatever the thing is that you think this is the thing you just you ain't messing with this thing. But he isn't. He's showing up on a donkey which declares peace. Now, by the way, they call them, by the way, Middle Eastern engineers to this day. Because what I do love about donkeys is is are is that they will actually find the safest route anywhere. They're brilliant this way. Horses, on the other hand, they're like doop a doop a doop and off the cliff they go. But with donkeys, on the other hand, they're very, very careful to find it. So what will happen is they build roads by following donkeys. They'll set them up, watch how they carry a burden, and then with that they'll go, this is the way that we want to be able to go because we see this is the safest route. And often, by the way, it's infinitely smoother and better than the ones that they would have otherwise. And the space between houses in a lot of the Middle East to this day has to be the space of a donkey with a burden, for what it's worth. So they call them the Middle Eastern engineers. 
They were the things that, which, by the way, when you saw a donkey, you thought there's a part of this, that there's a future involved. There's something going to be built from this thing. But when a king rode this thing, the idea of it was he was declaring there was a peaceful future. It was a future of prosperity. Let's face it, if you're about to go to war, it's no time to build your house. Does that make sense? It would be a time, by the way, that all that stuff you were going to use to build your house is now going to be built to, you know, used to be building other things. And we know that here in this country because we've been through world wars where we've had to give up other things to turn them into missiles and bullets and so forth. So when Jesus comes riding a donkey, he's declaring peace, and there's already a tremendous dichotomy. There are people who are going, God, save, take us into battle against Rome. And Jesus is riding the complete opposite animal for that type of event. He's showing them he's come to bring peace. And that's exactly what he says. If, this would, if you'd recognize this day, that brings you peace. Now, here's the funny part. He's going to battle. But he's going to battle to bring us peace. Peace with the Father. Now, by the way, if you're like, I don't think I get that, don't worry. Most people didn't because look at verse 16. Even those around him didn't either. Now, hear me on this. Second Peter 3.9, it tells us, The Lord's not slack, as some count slackness. He's long-suffering toward us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It tells us in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He won't get what he wants, but it is what he wants. In Ezekiel 33.11, it tells us, God says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God doesn't want you going to hell. He'd rather die than live without you. So his disciples, they didn't get it yet. But when he was glorified, when he did have his definitive moment, well, that's when they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. By the way, for what it's worth, on your own, there was a book out called The Coming King. And it was by a man that was a uh, detective for Scotland Yard named Richard Anderson. Uh, he took Daniel 9.24 where it says, actually, it's, What's worth it's Daniel 9.25, which says, Therefore, no one understand from the coming forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, there shall be seven weeks, that's seven sevens, and sixty-two sevens. That's simple. How much is seven plus sixty-two? Thank you. Sixty-nine sevens. I'm trying to make it easier. The streets shall be built, listen, the streets shall be built and the wall, even in troublesome time. No. It didn't take much to figure this out. You had to just figure out when someone gave the decree to build everything, including the wall. And then you actually then did 69 seven-year periods. Now, you have to take a Julian calendar because that's when he's writing, and that's 360 days of a year. So you take 360 times 69 times 7, and you come up with 173,880 days. If you take 173,880 days and you take it from the decree from Artaxerxes Longimanus, which is in 445 B.C., uh, March 14th for what's worth, uh, what you'll find out is that it'll take you actually to the day that we're looking at here in April of 32 A.D. So actually, this is one of the things that helped lead him to Christ, but also it took people that are really trying to disprove Christ and figure out that Daniel actually said he has to show up on one specific day, and that was the day that Jesus is showing up here. Now, this victorious king is riding on an animal of peace and prosperity while people are testifying. Look at verse 17. And now we'll start hitting this quick and hard. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason, the people also met him because they had, because 
they heard that he had done this sign, and the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you're accomplishing nothing, the whole world has gone after him. Now, hear me on this, and I'll just do a major point with the, the next part, and then we'll develop it next week. But hear me on this. There's this fantastic dichotomy of these people who want to be saved, but from the outside issues, while the king has come to save you from the eternal inside first. And he is there. So there's this dichotomy of desire. But while this is happening, notice the triumph, because in the triumph, that is victory. Remember, the people who followed told stories of the victory. And understand, people are following behind Jesus. But the people who are following behind Jesus are telling you how Jesus just raised Lazarus from the grave. They are testifying of the real battle and the real victory, which is that Christ has come to rescue you from the grave. And we see that with Lazarus. They're telling the same story of how the victory is complete. But we're just not getting it. Because we're too consumed about, well, about the external. As a matter of fact, the reason the disciples weren't getting it, for the most part, is because they were arguing over who would be greatest. Oddly enough, how weird is it to look in the face of Jesus and say, so who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And you're looking in the face of God to say that. Can you see Jesus going, it's me, stupid? You know, anyways, obviously he wouldn't say it that way. And he said, like, whoever's going to be the greatest needs to be the servant of all. So which one of you qualifies? Oh, that's Jesus again. I mean, who, you know, it's like, no matter what it is, Jesus is going to demonstrate he's the greatest. Now, hear me on this. Last thing, and I want to bring this in, because, again, there is this dichotomy, because while this is happening, and there are people, by the way, and this is the most painful thing to me, is when people look like they're agreeing because they say the same words, but they mean completely the opposite. It's two people who say, I love you, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And one person, what that means actually is, I need you. And the other person, what that means is, you've got something I want. And that's very different. Actually, they're both very different from the real word scripturally. As while this is happening, there's another dichotomy taking place. And that is that Jesus is coming to save everyone. And there are people who are openly declaring war against him because of it. Jesus is coming to keep you out of hell, to deliver you from the grave and from the pit and from your guilt and from the handwriting of requirements against you. You realize, in other words, from the charges that, have brought, that haven't been trumped but are legally and properly brought against us. In the court of eternity, he, there is a perfect charge and we are perfectly guilty and Jesus came to rescue us from that. And there are other people who, oddly enough, are religious who are actually saying... This is a horrible thing. The world's going after him. We need to stop him. Don't you find that strange? But you do know there are people out there like that too. That could be horribly religious in the sense of tradition, the cocktail of tradition and politics mixed together and, and somewhere else. Like, we don't want you. I mean, I've had people tell me, I don't, you know why I have a real problem with you? <laughs> I'm like, well, no, but it's clear you do, so I'd like to know. And then they're like, well, because you, you do altar calls. And that steals parishioners. I'm like, from, from what? So I give people a chance to say yes to Jesus, and you have a problem with that? So hear me on this. In verse 20, and again, we'll develop it in greater detail next week, but it says that there were Greeks, obviously these aren't Jewish people, who had come up to worship at the feast, and they came to a guy named Philip, and they're going to say, hey, can we see Jesus? 
And Philip's going to do, because, and we'll see, he's a problem fixer. He's the practical guy. And he goes to the guy that's the inviter, Andrew, and he goes, there's some Greeks out here that want to see Jesus. And Andrew's like, well, let's go tell Jesus. So let's invite him. So Jesus goes, hey, Jesus, there's some Greeks out there. And this is what Jesus says. Listen, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You want to see my definitive moment? The hour's come. But it isn't this moment you just saw. It's going to, and that's what he says. Look at the next thing to define it. Most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world, well, he'll keep it to eternal life. If you really want to serve me, well, then you better follow me, because where I am, then my servant will be. And if he serves me, my father is going to honor him. He's going to call him in very high guard. He's going to call him priceless. Now hear me on this. These Greeks have shown up for just this brief moment, and they're at the door. And you know what Jesus says is, let me show you what the definitive moment looks like. It looks like death. And it looks like life. But in that order. He goes, you want to just hold on to the life you have right now? You don't want to die to yourself? Then you will die alone. He goes, a seed can be a seed for the rest of its life, but it doesn't want to say, I don't want to be broken. I don't want to be broken open. I just want to be what I am. This is who I am. This is what I, this is the way I was made. I was born this way. This is it. He goes, yeah, but this thing's going to need to die in itself because it's got, God's got huge, huge plans for this thing, but they cannot, it cannot remain the way it is and fulfill those huge plans. You look at an acorn or you look at a seed and you realize that is a forest in training. It just needs to die and produce more. And understand, Jesus says, this will be my definitive moment. My definitive moment is not a bunch of people telling me to save them from their problem of the moment. Though we can cry out to God for those things. But Christ's definitive moment, well, this is how it says it. God says, this is love. He says, you want to see love's definitive moment? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a payment for our sins. Elasmus, the ransom payment. He goes, the father says, this is my love definitive moment. Is giving you my son to die so that he could rescue you from your grave. That's the whole point. Now hear me on this as we go to, to prayer. We started late. We're moving late on a snowy day. But we cannot miss the fact but here, on this day in 2018, maybe you're trying to keep yourself the way you were. Because you're afraid of what it would feel like to break. Would it fade to feel like what it would be like to actually be properly planted? For some people, the big issue is just that they just want to stay who they were. For some people, it's just they don't want to be planted. But in all of that, God has a plan. And the plan that God has for you to change the world. Why not you? I mean, if we learn anything from these disciples, don't we learn that Jesus doesn't have a problem picking doofuses like us? I mean, do you see, do you look at the disciples, you read the stories and you go, oh, these guys were clearly spiritual giants. I remind you, they weren't getting any of this as Jesus was descending. They're like, imagine, you know what that means? If they weren't getting it, could they have been shouting the same thing? Check it out. This is it. Jesus is going to set things up, and I'm going to be vice lord. You know? And then I'm going, well, you know, I'm, I'm the second greatest. Okay, we'll let Jesus be the greatest, but second greatest. 
I'm going to be Pope. Well, you don't understand. I'm going to be, you know. I mean, imagine the arguments. Jesus is like, you're not getting any of this. And imagine what it would be like to do that for a little bit. Yeah, we're going to take down Rome. And then you look over and Jesus is on a donkey. You're like, that's the weirdest thing. Come on. Oh, maybe we couldn't find a horse. You know, no, no, we're going to take down Rome. And then you look and then Jesus is bawling his eyes out. And you're like, oh, the one guy that doesn't seem to be hip to the party is the one everyone's celebrating right now, but for the wrong reasons. Now, is it the outside or the inside you need changed? Because this is what I learned. You could change the outside and die Particularly, Christ changed the inside and everything changes. You want the world around you changed? Let's start with letting Christ change the world inside of us. Then the rest happens. Have you accepted this gift of Christ or are you still just trying to use him as a butler to change the little problems? Well, they seem like big problems at the moment, but remember those big problems that aren't big problems anymore? Let's let Christ defeat the biggest issue, the issue inside. The guilt and the handwriting requirement against us, the guilty charge against us. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the fact that you've shown us through this how we can, just like the crowd, we can get caught up and it just seems like, it always seems the majority is caught up in trying to make you something you're not. That you're just there to, to kind of make our life more comfortable. And if there's any deliverance, it's deliverance from the things that we have on our list that are temporary and come and go. They, they may be horrible at the moment. We recognize that. But one day, the earth and its lusts thereof and all of its accomplishments that are earthly will pass away. They will melt in fervent heat. Even the elements will melt. They'll be gone forever. And there won't be sickness. And there won't be these weird emotional turmoils. And there won't be these relational weirdnesses. And there will be no more goodbyes. And there will be no more watching people die. And there will be no more disappointments and frustrations and all of the things that are so common right now. All of that will be gone. And we'll stand before you and, and, and it'll be whatever state we're in then we'll be in forever. And though those things are temporary and, and they're but a vapor, you have a legitimate charge on us of rebellion. And you've paid that price. And we will stand before you responsible for the choice we make to that gift. So here in this room right now, if we've never said yes to your offer, maybe we're just trying to get you, recruit you to our side. Instead of let you pull us out of the grave of our own guilt, Lord, I pray right now we would, we would accept that gift and pray this prayer with me right now if that's you. God, I'm guilty in and of myself you love me and you want me and you sent Jesus to pay the price for me on the cross where he conquered all of that. And then he rose from the grave and he stands victorious. And there he is at your right hand, Father, interceding. And you give me the choice to say yes to this gift and I say yes. I say yes, God. Please. Take this life and make it yours. Wash me clean. Set me anew. 
And gladly, Lord Jesus, even as you went to the earth and were broken and crushed, you did that because you didn't want to be alone. Because I was on your mind. Knowing that you would rise again and bear forth tremendous fruit, Lord. You would change the whole universe. And now, Lord, it's my turn. It's my turn to pick up my cross and follow you. And may I go willingly. And I pray for the salvation of London. I pray for the salvation of all those around me. But right now, I just want to say yes to you. Say, first of all, change the world in me. And then transform the world around me. I hand myself to you. Confessing Jesus is my Savior my ransom, and my Lord. In his name I pray. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayer. And now I just pray, Lord, that we would recognize that each of us will have definitive moments. May we now live a life of definitive moments that show on the outside the manifestation of the transformation you've done inside. In Jesus' name.